great and gracious Savior. Thank you that you took on flesh and became a man, became a baby, born to a poor couple in the Middle East, uh, born into hard circumstances, oppressed from the very beginning, on the run from a ruler whom you had made, and yet he tried to destroy you. And yet in the end, you would come and you would die for, for those who would believe, even such rulers, even such as would put you to pain and torture and death, even such as us who would mock and dishonor and blaspheme your name. And yet, you have worn our shame. You have taken our sin. You have absorbed all the wrath of God due us from your great father as you agreed together with him to do so that you could redeem for yourself brothers and sisters down through the ages and across the world. We rejoice in that this morning. Would you give us eyes to see a fresh glimpse of what you have done? And would you do this eye-opening work and this, this arrogance-humbling work and this hard-heart-softening work in my life and in ours this morning, so that we truly might sing together with one voice and revel in all that Christ is. We'll praise you for it. We'll give you this time to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, when Jesus uh, trained his disciples, he promised them three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. What a great conundrum, right? What a, what a great irony of promises from Christ to his followers. And yet, because of just such an irony, it was all the more true. When God wrote his story, as we believe in scripture that he has done, he did it with interest and he did it with tension. He did it with surprise and with mystery. And yes, he did it with irony. Nearly every aspect of the humbling and the death of Christ betrays abiding irony and a wonderful, glorious reversal. And that, it's not by accident. It was written that way by Matthew and the gospel writers. It was planned that way from the eternal sovereign Lord of history. And it is there for us, for all of those who would have eyes to see. Lord, help us see. Help us see this morning and let it be for our hope and let it be for our courage. Matthew 27, we're going to jump into the middle of this chapter. Christ is right now at this point in custody with the Roman authorities. It has been a very, very long night and it is now very, very full morning. Christ has already stood before Caiaphas. He's already stood before a mockery of a trial before the Jewish leaders. They want him killed, and so he is bound and delivered over to Pilate. There, and I'm skipping so much, as you know, his judgment is pronounced. At this point, by verse 32, he has been turned over to the soldiers. He has been once again mistreated and fully prepared for his crucifixion. We pick up. Matthew 27, 32, as he is being led out before the people. Let's read the first part of our passage for this morning. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross, to bear Jesus' cross. 
And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over Jesus there. And above his head, they had put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Pause there this morning. Let's, let's ask the Lord that he would give us insight into these ironies, that he would help us to revel in these reversals for our hope and for our courage. First, I would have you notice that he was weak. In his suffering, he was weak. That's what we find in 32. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. The Romans had the authority to do this and utilized it often. They could come to a conquered citizen, as the nation of Israel was at this time, and command them to do their bidding, to carry a load for them or to take care of some task. And if they did not do whatever the bidding was, they could face the full wrath of the Roman authorities as a result. Why is it that these soldiers are forced to force Simon into this carrying of the cross of Jesus, the cross beam we know from history at this point he's to carry? They force him because, they force Simon because Jesus can't, because in his suffering he was too weak. A couple of brief ironies here that they had to have someone carry the cross of Jesus when Jesus himself came to carry ours. How ironic here that one named Simon had promised never to deny the Lord Jesus and that he would be with him even if he had to die with him. And yet here in his moment of great need, they have to find a different Simon because that first one like us did deny him and fall short isn't there at his side in the time of need. Truly, it was his time of need because he was very weak from all that he has suffered. By this time, what we know already, and I'll just give you the uh, highlights, he's been betrayed and arrested just in the last few hours. He's been abandoned and railroaded. He's been paraded. He's been mocked. He's been spat on. He's been pierced by thorns. He's been beaten at least twice. He's been stripped and he's been whipped with the 40 lashes laying bare, the blood and the flesh on his back. He was human and he suffered as a man. He got thirsty. He grew tired. He felt hungry. When he was cut, he bled and he became weak. In suffering, he was weak. You see, he had to be human. He had to face weakness. He had to experience it in order to save us. He had to be made a man to die for you and to die for me, to take my place and to take your place. Only a human could do it. In his suffering, he was weak. But when he rose... Scripture says he was declared the son of God with power. Love that phrase. Declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4. Now he is exalted at the right hand of God. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter 
tells all of those who are there some few weeks after this event that it is this Jesus who now has the power to send the Holy Spirit from heaven, from that place of power and authority and glory so that our lives could be changed. We come and we gather for Easter morning and rightly the thought is who can, who can help but, but rejoice? Who can, who can help but sing on a day like today? Yes. Friend, maybe you come in this morning and you, you think, you know what, I could help it because I don't feel like singing today. I'm hurting today. I don't know if I want to go and be in a room full of people who are happy today. Maybe I'm just not good enough for Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Friend, if that's you, you are so in the right place. Because in his suffering, he is weak. And man, that's a hurdle I can get under. That's a, that's a requirement I can meet. God helping me. I can be weak before him. Have you come to him in weakness? Because in his suffering, he was weak. Do you daily see his power? Because the, that's, that's the outcome of coming in weakness is letting his power, his strength, his grace be sufficient for our needs. Would you, if you have never before, come today and share? Come and bring your weakness. Come and share in a savior, savior who in his suffering was made weak to show you how foolish your strength is that he would save you through weakness because you and I were so dumb in our smartness to think we had to be strong to be good. And so he became weak. Would you be willing to share in his weakness before the world? That's what he offers. That's what he calls. And what he gives in return, raised from the dead, is now a glorious king whose spirit comes to live in you with power. Power to do what you can't, just the impossible, to forgive those who have genuinely hurt you. To speak love and grace to those who don't want iota deserve it. To love, to heal, to comfort when all you want is to hurt. I can't, but he can. And that's what he does. What great irony that here in verse 32 in his suffering, he was weak. Second, Notice he was escorted to a place of death. In his suffering, he was escorted to a place of death. Verse 33, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, it's named Golgotha either because that natural formation has some sort of a skullish shape or because it was so well-renowned for its purpose in being a place of death, or potentially both. This is the place where they led him. How ironic for the Lord of life to be led by the hand to his extinction. But since the wages of sin is death, he had to die for our sin. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all have rejected God, 
he would need to be rejected from life in our place. In his suffering, he was escorted to a place of death, but, but when he rose, he conquered death. Remember his words to Mary? I am the resurrection and the life, Mary. He who believes in me will, will never die. Second Timothy says that he brought life and immortality to light through his work. This very work of being led to the place of death is that first step towards bringing forth life and immortality of resurrection life. And now 2 Corinthians 2 tells us that he, he now lives to lead in triumphal procession those who have believed in him. You know what the picture would have been in that, in that day in a Roman colony under Roman government? When the Caesars came to town, they threw a party because it looked good. Even more so when they conquered their foes and won a war. Oh, they made sure that everybody celebrated and they came and they led a long string of slaves and conquered people in bondage to demonstrate their great might and their great power. Well, Jesus did the same thing, except we're willing slaves that he leads. And it is such a triumphal procession. That's the picture, just the word picture that they would resonate with, but it's a, such a different celebration, such a, a different parade with him in that day. Do you feel like your struggles sometimes are you being dragged to the place of death? Lord, I don't want to go there, but I just can't get out of it. I can't, I can't figure out how to not go down this road, either because I can't stop myself or because circumstances are beyond my control. Lord, this is where I'm going. What should I do? I faced it this week. I face it every week, and so do we all. Circumstances that at one point led my thoughts to spiral down to a place where I was so frustrated to the point of hating in my heart. Christ says that's murder and I'm guilty of it. Thank you, Lord, for clear conviction and clear direction. So now, Lord, Hosanna, come save. Now, Lord, rescue. Okay, Lord, dead to rights, guilty. Come get me, Lord, because I need your help feel like you're being dragged to a place of death fine so be it go and die because that's what Christ did that's what he did for you and me to bring resurrection life and Paul says in Philippians I long to know him in the power of his death and in his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection that's what Paul says that the only way to get from here to he from here to there in that resurrection power life is to die by his help. Christians are not invincible. They just know the one who is. And so when they get led to death, they say, okay, this isn't hard for you. Oh, it's bitterly hard for me, Lord, but okay, Lord, lead on. And I'll give you my hand. And even in their sufferings, he takes us by the hand and he leads. And that passage that says that when he rose and he ascended and he led, he led a people in triumphal procession, that same passage in 2 Corinthians 2 goes on to say that as Christ leads us, 
that we are a fragrance of Christ to God. Is that not sweet? That in our brokenness, what pours out of us is a sweet aroma that God himself smells the beautiful, satisfying humility and sacrifice of his son at work in you, believer. In his suffering, he was escorted to the place of death so that he could rise and conquer death. Friend, don't fear to suffer. Confess your need. Lean into it. And then run to Christ who can raise you from the dead. That's our hope. Third, notice that he refused a bitter cup. In his suffering, he refused a bitter cup. Verse 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. One of the other gospels says it's wine mixed with myrrh, so which is it? I'm not sure if gall isn't a more general term and myrrh the more specific term, or it's possible it was wine mixed with both. Bottom line, all we really know about gall is that it tastes terrible. It doesn't do anything good. Myrrh is, in some cases, used as a painkiller. Maybe Jesus here was unwilling to have his faculties blunted because he's going to hang on the cross and offer salvation to another guy hanging on another cross a few feet away. And he wants to be clear to be able to do that. And he's going to pronounce forgiveness and ask for it over those who are doing the very torture and killing. And he wants to have all of his faculties to do that. And maybe, just maybe, as he absorbs all the wrath of God for what I've done, he wants to be able to experience all of it. He also, though, refuses this cup just because of its bitterness. In fact, that's what Matthew's telling of the tale emphasizes a wine to drink mixed with gall. It was a very bitter drink. There's an irony here because the micro picture is the very opposite of the big picture. Because the big picture is that in reality, he did what? He drank the bitter cup. He drank it down to the very end. In fact, you could flip your page over to Matthew 26, 39, where he will say, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me this bitter cup but if there is no other way not my will but yours be done and so he would drink that cup and in so doing Christ would become a cup of blessing to all those who believe in him first Corinthians tells us that what we just celebrated in communion is a sharing in that cup of blessing until that day when we get to drink it in full together with him oh what a day Jesus had to endure full judgment for sin. Here he refuses the bitter cup, but he, make no mistake, drinks the bitter cup down to the end so that he could offer the grace of God to those, to those who would trust in him. Fourth, notice that they gambled for his last earthly possessions. In his suffering... They gambled for his last earthly possessions. 35, when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. This uh, was typically the, the rewards. It was the spoils for those soldiers who did the dirty deed of the crucifixion. Anything that the criminal happens to still have on him, he ain't going to need it anymore, so you can have it. The only 
decision left at this point is which one of us gets to take the best stuff home. So they cast dice for it. They gamble for his last earthly possessions. What a reversal here. Because here he was the creator of the universe. Here he is, the owner of the universe. Here he is, Hebrews 1 says, the one who has appointed the heir of all things. There is nothing that Christ does not have ownership and authority over to do with as he will. And here are the very last things that could even be thought of as his possessions. The last things that have his name on them are being are being bargained for, are being gambled for at his feet. Do you know why he who made everything became nothing? It is so that you and I wouldn't need anything except him. That's why he did it. What a reversal here. Do you know him today? Are you enjoying him today? I could say, I've got a lot of stuff that I enjoy, but you don't need anything except him. Sometimes our other things keep us from enjoying him. Or maybe it's what you don't have that keeps you from enjoying him. What a great God that there's nothing else we need. And he came empty-handed into eternity so that he could offer us everything when we come into eternity with him if we trust in Christ. Knowing him is better than all earthly possessions. Fifth, notice they acknowledged him as king. They did acknowledge him as king, but they did it to insult him. In his suffering, they acknowledged him as king to insult him. 36, sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, king of the Jews. You understand the reason that that was put there? is it's explaining the reason why he's being crucified so that everybody on this major thoroughfare, any of these crowds walking by, seeing these men in terrible, excruciating suffering and agony would know immediately why. Well, this one over here is a robber. The word in English is probably not strong enough to do justice to the Greek word and probably to the context. These two are likely buddies of Barabbas. A better word would be insurrectionists. Do you like that word? I do. I have no idea what it means, but it sounds good. They're, they're more than just robbers. They're mob leaders. Uh, terrorists is pretty close. Um, they don't crucify people for robbery in Rome. These two have done more. But above Jesus' head... His charge, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, because they can't find anything else to charge him with. And because Pilate has ordered this purposely as an insult. Okay, you Jews, here's your king. You want to worship him? Have at it. Watch him bleed. Watch him cry out in pain. Look at him gasp. Watch him breathe his last. Look at him die. Worship your king. Pilate says. Surely it's an insult. But how ironic, because it's true. Because he was the king, and he is the king. And little did they know when they, they wrote it there for all to see, they were proclaiming the truth of all of Scripture. The king has come to rescue his people, Israel, and for all 
who will come. In his suffering, they acknowledged it. But what they meant as an insult, it could not be a truth that for you and for me does not make us more enamored with him. Yes, I see my king. I see what he did. I revel that he suffered for me because that should have been me. Oh, Lord God, thank you. And when he rose, he sat down on the throne, Scripture says, as that promised king, as God told to David way back in 2 Samuel 7, that you will have a son, one from your lineage, who will sit on the throne of David forever. Well, we're seeing a pretty clear pattern here by now, aren't we? We're seeing the pattern of the purpose of Matthew's gospel at this point, and we're seeing the witness of God's Savior to all of creation. For this morning, let's just see this irony and this reversal in these next few witnesses. Pick up with me again in verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Notice that he is judged as a criminal in his suffering. In his suffering, he is judged as a criminal, verse 38, put right there between these two insurrectionists crucified together with him. Yeah, in his suffering, counted among criminals in fulfillment of Psalm 22. By the way, I don't have time this morning to note every single passage of the Old Testament that's fulfilled just within these dozen or so verses this morning, but there are so many. But in fulfillment of the promise that he would be numbered amongst transgressors, in his suffering he's judged as a criminal, but that'll be reversed, was reversed, and will be all the more because one day he'll sit as the one who judges not as the one in the dock found guilty, not as the one before the bench proclaimed guilty, but the one sitting on the throne who judges. Notice he's verbally abused by the crowds. In his suffering, he's verbally abused by the crowds. 39, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Such a weird phrase, wagging their heads. But you get the idea of the yeah, uh-huh kind of attitude that goes with that. My wife went to a high school where there were um, girls at that high school who knew how to wag their heads when they talked to you. And my wife, if you get her mad, I don't think I've ever seen you do that to me, but I might get it today. Praise God. You get the picture. It can be done, right? That's... That's a nonverbal that's showing where their heart is. But as if that weren't enough, uh, our English translation here, mine says hurling abuse in verse 39. Uh, but there's a little marginal note in the literal Greek word there is the word that we usually 
translate blaspheming. They're, they're calling down curses. They're mocking. They're making fun. They're calling him names. Whatever, whatever the worst that you could imagine, blaspheming is the word that is spoken of what these strangers, these crowds walking by are saying to that man hanging on the cross. What an irony. Because after he rose, 1 Timothy 3 tells us that his name was proclaimed among the nations. His name will be sung to the ends of the earth. Complete strangers who weren't there that day will hear of and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and give God glory for that name. They will praise the Lord for that one who hung on that cross. What a reversal. Next, notice that he was challenged to prove himself. In his suffering, he was challenged to prove himself. Verse 40 and this is what the crowds were saying. You who are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Well, we know that what they're doing is they're referring to something that Christ has said. It's recorded in John chapter 2, early in his ministry. He is demanded to give a sign, and of course he refuses. But he says, okay, right, you want to see a cool trick? I'll give you one. Destroy this temple, and in three days... I'll build it back up again. And they say, you're an idiot. Because it took decades and it took hundreds of workers to build that thing. And then John tells us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Hey, those who have ears to hear, he says, to these hard-hearted Pharisees and these rulers, if you get the picture, just let, me, just let me give you something to file away. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, they're about to destroy it. He's about to raise it up. And that's not hard for him. There's something else in here, by the way, that it's, it's a beautiful, if, if not beautifully tragic, bookend in the Gospel of Matthew. Here Christ is at the very, very end of his earthly ministry. Do you remember the very first thing that happened at the beginning of his earthly ministry? Okay, well, when would that be? He's baptized, River Jordan, John the Baptist, and then he goes where? Driven out into the wilderness by Satan, who does what? Challenges him to prove himself. If you are the son of God, Satan says to him, command these stones to come bread. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from this great height and prove it. Here he is hanging on the cross in the very end. The crowds walking by say, if you are the son of God, then just prove it. Nothing's changed. And nothing's changed today, has it? And then they, they, they quote his own words back to him to make it worse, to turn the knife. You said, tear it down and I'll build it back up. You think you can do that? Well, then surely you can save yourself. They will tear it down. He will raise it back up. He did rebuild the temple. In fact, at Pentecost, when Peter preached, he told them that for Jesus, it was impossible for him to be held within the power of death. It was impossible. Why? Because it was morally impossible. It was a cosmic injustice of the universe. He, the righteous one, had died in the place of sinners. And so now, 
He had to be given back up. He had to be raised from the dead. I hope you're all thinking a little bit of Aslan and C.S. Lewis at this point because I think that's where he got it, right? You know he did. And if that isn't enough, not only challenge to prove himself, but the leaders are going to go one step further. Notice that he's told that his death was his failure to help them believe. In his suffering, Jesus is told that his death is his failure to help them believe. Is that crazy? Did you catch it? Look at 41. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross. And here it is. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe. Huh. You know why we don't believe you? Because you won't do enough to help us believe. So we don't believe, and it's your fault. That's what they say to him. Striking at the very heart of all that Christ has come to do. What a demonic challenge. Come down, and we'll believe. You want us to believe you? Great. Should be easy. I'm waiting. Oh, did I hear you breathing hard? I'm waiting, they say. They blame God for their unbelief. Wow. Folks, you can't reject God and then blame God. But we do it. People do it. Reject God and then blame God for their rejection of him. And it happened there at the cross. So if it could happen there, it happens all the time. What a manipulative ploy they try to use on Jesus. You know what's so great? He who is the, the master of, of turning it against them does the master work here. What's their claim? Come down and we'll believe. What's his answer? I won't come down. And in not coming down, I'm going to give you something to believe. Because I'll die. And then I'll rise. And if you want to believe, Believe that, he says. When he rose, he gave them reason to believe. Paul writes and he says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied. For if Christ is not risen, then we will not rise and we are still in our sins. Huh. That's what Christ, by his silence, by his death, and then by his resurre resurrection is answering to their charge. Friends, have you ever rejected God? Have you ever blamed God? I have. My guess would be everyone in this room could say they have. Is he big enough for that? Let me tell you some good news. We know that there will be Pharisees who will come to believe in Christ. Just read through the book of Acts. Pharisees coming at numerous occasions, believing in Christ, because after he died and he rose, they scratched their head and they said, you know what, I didn't believe him then, but I think I believe him now for what he's done. If he did not die, then you could believe in Christ and it would be utterly pointless. But if he did die, and then if he did rise, then believing him is everything. There is no other question more important 
that you will consider in the course of your life than that one here before you this morning. What will you do with Christ who in answer to their taunts come down and will believe, refuse to do so, but says, no, I died and rose so you can believe. Next, noticed, notice he was ridiculed for trusting in God. He was in his suffering ridiculed for trusting in God. 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. They're actually quoting here from a passage where the psalmist places all of his trust, throws everything upon the Lord. And that is a psalm that refers to the Messiah. Just one more time that the enemies really fulfill prophecy by quoting it of Jesus. But notice what they're doing in their words. They're, they're ridiculing him. He trusts in God. What a fool. Look at him die. Look at him suffer. Where is God who's supposed to be the one whom he's trusting in? And yet, when he rose, he proved that the Father was trustworthy, didn't he? Have you ever been ridiculed for trusting God in something? Have you ever had the courage to be vulnerable enough to tell someone, you know, I'm just trusting the Lord? What do you mean you two haven't slept together yet? Haven't you been dating for like three years? I don't know, man. We're just trying to trust God. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right? Or you can make up your own. You're going to trust God with that? But when he rose, the father said, my son, you could trust me. You could trust me to the end. You can trust me to the bitter end and beyond death because I love you. I do delight in you. I'm your father. <laughs> if you've never been ridiculed for trusting him, by the grace of God, may you be. And may you find the Father eminently trustworthy. Will you trust him today? Next, notice he was taunted by the accusations by the, that the Father didn't love him. This is the second half of what we just read. In his suffering, he was taunted by the accusations that the Father did not love him. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Oh, so your father loves you, huh? As he hangs on the cross. How's that working out for you? I remember we had a couple of guys come by the church. I can't, this, I don't know, 12, 14, 15 years ago. They had come by for something else. I won't even go into it. It's a longer story. But incidentally, we got to talking about spiritual things by the grace of God. And um, so I just said something. I, I don't, for the life of me, remember what I said. All I remembered was the guy's response. I said something about God or you know, Jesus is good, or I trust, I don't know what it was, and, and you know what the guy's response to me, complete stranger, and I was being really nice up to this point, <laughs> he said, uh, so how's that working out for you, I was completely floored, I was so mad, I want you to know, I thought of 10 really, really good responses, like later in the day, <laughs> I, I, I had nothing, I'm like, I think it's going all right, I mean, I was, it was just one of those moments, right? And I was, I felt really, really dumb. 
But praise God, he doesn't feel really, really dumb over me. I, I didn't know what to say, but I put that in the Lord's hands long ago, and I've slept since then. Here, here they are um, taunting him, wanting to, to silence him. How's that working out for you? How, how the Father delights in you. How's that going? You ever felt like you're in a situation where someone could look at you and say that? They said that to Christ as he hung there in so many words. But then, but then he rose him from the dead and he rescued him from death and he proved he proved what he had already said multiple times during those few years when Christ walked the earth. This is my beloved son. I delight in him. Listen to him. He proved it when he rose him from the dead. And then lastly, for our time together this morning, notice that he was insulted by criminals. In his suffering, he was insulted by criminals. 44, the robbers, we return to them, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. We know one of them before his hours on the cross are up. We'll have a miraculous opening of his eyes and a change in his spirits. And we believe we will see him because Jesus said we would. But up until this point, at least, Matthew just records that even those who were criminals, those hanging there, those dying, those, those facing the judgment for what they've done, have the audacity to turn around and find somebody else to mock, right? Doesn't misery love company? Do, do, don't we at our lowest just look around for somebody else to kick? Is that not just human nature? Oh, yeah, I'm bad, and I'm going to die. But him, this guy's really got trouble, right? Insulted by criminals, but when he rose, he was exalted above kings. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 1. Speaking of God's strength and how it was shown through raising Christ from the dead. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 20. And when the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Reversal after reversal, irony after irony. I'm sure I've left out, I don't know how many that you can find even in these dozen verses, but what a great encouragement for us. What a great truth for what we see our Savior has done. What great shame fell on the head of the Savior. Your shame, my shame, fell on his head. Oh, thank you, Lord, that it did because that's my only hope. Because for those who believe what great glory now is ours in being made sons and daughters of the Most High God because he would be so shamed. Kevin DeYoung says that the fundamental, fundamental story of the world is not the story of good guys and bad guys or of oppressors and the oppressed, 
The fundamental story of the world is one of sinners and a savior. This savior was wonderfully humbled. He willingly suffered. He was gloriously shamed so that sinners could have courage and could have hope. He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's on the throne. Christ is risen. Stand with me. Let's close it. Gracious God, our good Father, thank you for allowing your son to be subjected to misery and shame and death so that we could have joy and glory and life, none that we deserve. Father, we ask here in our midst, if any you have been at work in their heart who have not yet come to admit their sin and their need, come in their weakness, cry out for a Savior who was weak but now is gloriously strong on their behalf. If any in our midst have not yet done that or any hearing this now, Lord, would you call them to you? Friend, would you go to him because he is willing to receive you? Would you go now and say, Lord, save me. I am weak. I am broken. I have denied you. I have dishonored you. I have sinned. Forgive me and make me yours. I can't do it. But you said you can. And Lord God, you, would you receive all who come to you now? And Lord, might they then have their, their tongues loosed and their lips opened to speak of your grace, to witness of your kindness, to desire to come forth publicly and make a testimony through baptism that they've gone from death to life Lord, do your work and draw those in need today in our midst. And for us who are in need, who already know you, Lord, in need just to come and know your peace and your power, a power that comes only through death. Lord God, let us once again joyously let, let you lead us by the hand. Take us to that place where Christ becomes all in all and you are our joy and where we need nothing else. We love you for it. We praise your name, and we thank you together with all the believers down through the ages and across the face of the earth who sing your honor today. In Christ's name, amen.